Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson. And the last time we spoke with you, we were talking about mummies, those incredible beings who, even when they die, they come right back. And so I thought the only way to do this topic justice is to talk about it again. And that's what we're doing today with Mummy 2nd Edition. We've got another book of mummies. We are going back into it with more to share. Before we get into it, Terry, are there any announcements? Just like mummies, we spent several decades in the underworld replenishing our bar before doing this. I guess the one question is, do we do, do we go and do Mummy 3rd? Do you and I read Mummy the Resurrection? And I'm pretty sure the answer is no, because that is a very, very big book and a completely different game line. But I don't have any announcements. <laughs> okay. The closest thing I have to an announcement is I got back into gaming this week. My youngest son let it leak out at school. Hey, my dad knows Dungeons and Dragons. And before long, the other mothers were talking to my wife with requests. Last night, I ran a game for six hyperactive 12-year-olds. And let me tell you, you have not lived until you have gamed with six sixth graders. They all want to talk at the same time. They all want to do everything at the same time. It is, uh, it's an experience. But uh, I think I'm going to try it again because uh, I need more experience points. But hey, let's talk about... Mummy 2nd Edition. Now, people who are new to World of Darkness, they see the covers for these two books. One says Mummy, the other says Mummy, and they say, well, is this the same book with different covers? No, if you look carefully, there are hidden red letters that say 2nd Edition on today's book. And this was done five years later in 1997. The authors are Graeme Davis and James Estes. This clocks in at 141 pages, so there is a much greater page count to cover the topic more thoroughly. Terry, can you start us off with a walkthrough? Sure. I thought you were going to say, if you look closely, you could see that this book is twice the size of the previous one. I, it, was, it was a real nice cover in Mummy First Edition. That was back like when you and I just started and we're doing the one-e tradition books and they're like 85 pages. I could bang one out in a day of ignoring my job. It was great. But now we've hit books where I have to ignore my work for an entire week and sometimes my family along with it. But these are the sacrifices that I make. Yeah. We got the John Cobb in the front. We got Alex Shakeman in the back, the World of Darkness mullet, as I'm going to call it. You'd mentioned Graham Davis and friend of the show, James Estes. Graham Davis did a number of books for Pelgrane and also did GURPS Viking and Mythic Ireland. There's no Joshua Gabriel Timbrook in this book, so there is no small-nosed androgyny throughout, as opposed to, I guess, the opposite artistic pole, which would be the regal snozzes of Jeff Lobenstein. So that, that would be Alpha and Omega, I would say, to it. Uh, before we move on, I just, while you're talking about the cover, I mean, this, this cover just put my eyes out. I, I look at the, the Mummy First Edition cover and there's like three different pictures next to each other. And if you like look at them in sequence, like, oh, I think there's a profound message here. This one, uh, profundity is not what comes to mind. It looks like glaring neon lights, a Las Vegas lounge act called The Ungrateful Dead that you have to watch while wearing sunglasses. This cover is something else. I would call it Horus and the Egyptones. <laughs> but that's the, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> the introduction just bang out the gate with incest and bitterness and that the world is decaying. We get a letter that, that someone has corrupted a priestess and for that he is looked down by the Shemsu Heru. We get a peak of what seems to be an Egyptian distant shore in the Tempest, which is apparently kind of a one-way deal. So we, we get our little framing fiction and then it just gets into the rest of it. We find out that Thoth was who created the spell of life or 
at least transferred it on. That's new information. The framing device in this book is a letter from the in-world author to his lost love saying, hey, these are bits of mummy lore that I've been able to put together because uh, we forget things a lot. I'm thrilled that the systems of the world of darkness are now diegetic in the world of darkness because that means a mummy wrote down the system for what to roll. The theme is memory, how it fades over time, and how it changes identity and meaning. Mummies are pawns in a war over ages. So we have questions of how active that is. We get recommendations to read up on certain other lines. The Orphic Circle is first brought up and we find out that Apophis is an agent or manifestation of the worm. So this kind of ties the lines together. Two things kind of went off on my radar, two new words, the Kabiri, the variant mummies made through other rites of rebirth as opposed to the spell of life. And the Code of Horus has now been formalized and the adherents of this are the Shemsu Heru versus the Ishmaelites who seemingly rebelled. And these are still yet different from the Bane mummies. So reading through, this book has tacked on 60 more pages or whatever from the previous one. I'm wondering, does it flesh out the world more? Does it give more defined systems if you want it? And how does it change the nature and feel of being a mummy in the world of darkness? And that's what I'm keeping my eye out for. What did you think of the introduction, Adam? Usually we get a prelude, which is fiction, and then intro, which is the authors talking directly to the readers. This time, those two elements were all together in the intro. The fiction shows us the passion that can keep a man going for centuries. However, I, I was just wondering, a person who's been alive for centuries and has that sort of a perspective, would they be motivated by this sort of, of passionate goal, or, or would they take a more introspective or intellectual view of the situation? That, that was the one thing I was wondering about. But there's a quote on page nine, the entire existence of mummies is predicated on the struggle of one man to avenge his father's death. And I was thinking, well, you know, after reading the first book, I'm not sure I would agree with that. A majority of mummies look at this as a symbolic of the larger struggle against evil and, and think of it that way. So I'm not sure if a lot of mummies are going to agree with that statement. There is a recommended section, uh, books and movies, as we had in the first book. What got me is they list a whole bunch of movies and then they say, these movies are really, really terrible. It's like, well, then why are you recommending them to me? <laughs> The Spell of Life is now called the Rite of Rebirth, which I think sounds cool. Uh, mummies now have a more official name of The Reborn, which sounds cool to me. I'm ready for chapter one. Chapter one opens with, I thought, a pretty good little quote. And it says, We hail from the days before history. Our deeds have been all but forgotten, lost through time, or transferred into the myths and legends of mortals. We are an ancient people, not so ancient as humanity to be sure, or the skin changers, or the fae, but still we come from ancient lands. Parenthetically, also true mages predate them, as do vampires, apparently. Most of our kind from the, come from the Nile Delta and the land called Egypt, but we are not alone. Other reborn come from the lands of Samaria and beyond, but we know little of them. Some few of us, the latter ones, hail from Europe, but they are a minority. Without a doubt, our beginnings lie in Egypt. And this book is just very well written. And that came across to me in the first 10 pages. First Mummy had a lovely, breezy, intimate feel where it just feels like my good buddy, Mr. Wick, is talking to me about mummies. This one is a little bit more formal, a little bit more academic, and it feels like the uh, the authors put a little more work into having a, a more dignified presentation. Not necessarily better writing than the first, but a difference in tone that I thought really carried through the book. The first chapter is entitled Sibayet, 
and goes over the history of mummies. So we got a history before. This one is a little bit different. The first bit of information that we get is about something called the Isis Fragments, which is one of the historical documents that kind of lays out what the mummies know. Isis is a great magician, a child of Ra. Ra teaches her magic in her dreams. She is the brother-husband of Osiris because that's how the Egyptians rolled with their gods. Osiris is leading and is leading good and unites the two lands of Egypt along with other lands surrounding it. He follows Ma'at and the idea of cosmic balance. Set, his brother, is jealous but just can't do anything until a figure by the name of Typhon comes. Osiris meets with Typhon who warns him of grave issues and dangers outside the land and we get the idea that Osiris is embraced and becomes a vampire. Thoth visits and says he has wisdom that can only be taught to the living, passes over Osiris, and shows what we, what I assume is true magic to Isis and Nephithis. Set returns after having been banished by Osiris, and instead of fearing the beast within him as a vampire, he embraces it. He traps Osiris and Isis flees, hiding among the reeds of the Nile, and is aided by the crocodile folk in the Bastet. This book has a lot more direct ties to other World of Darkness games. Isis breaks the tomb that Osiris is entombed in, but before she can re-empower Isis, Set tears him into 13 pieces, spilling his blood across Egypt, which is said to be the cause of the close link between Egypt and its underworld. Horus and Isis are captured. Set plucks out Horus's eye. Magic keeps him alive. A ritual reunites the parts of Osiris, and he returns having spoken with Anubis and learned to quiet the beast in the underworld. Anubis also tells them to that to grant Horus eternal life, they need to let him die so that his bond cock can reunite, and with magic and the wisdom of Anubis, he can be made eternal. Isis doesn't become immortal, so she can join her family and just passes on her learnings as a true mage. So by and large, this is the same starting story as we get before. We still get a mention to Set losing his dingleberries, which was important to me in the previous one. We get no, <laughs> we, uh, we sadly get no mention of Horus manifesting laser vision, the, which I think was literally referred to as the searing eye of Horus. I'm like, now we're talking so bitter you shot a laser beam out of you. But otherwise the histories at least agree. This one is a little bit more detailed and a little bit larger, which seemingly is often the relationship between the second edition version of something and the first edition version of something in the world of darkness. We then move forward in history to the founding of the Assyrian League. This is a set of people who have allied against Set. This includes the Bastet, which are werecats, the Mokole, who are were reptiles of various types, and the children of Osiris. These are infrequent allies. Many of the Bastet have fallen. The Mokole are very stubborn for unfathomable reasons, which I think is this book's way of referring to like the litanies that various changing breeds have. And the children of Osiris as a vampire cult has just kind of turned inward. The cult of Isis is starting to become useful, which is kind of the mortal collection of people that tries to cultivate magic, whether it be hedge magic or true magic, to, to fight Set. Horus learns about the jihad and is like, oh no, there may be more sets. And is then like, yes, I have to kill them all. This book is a bit more vampire focused, which is interesting because in the first book, they only had vampires to really work with. And still this one feels like it's a little more vampire focused. The Osiris legend is born, but I'm not sure if Osiris is like dead, dead at this point. Anyway, Horus returns after some period of time and sees Egypt united under King Menes. Horus realizes things will break and he's going to need to have more mortals. Just if he just 
goes away every time he does, everything's going to fall apart, which to me is a failure of leadership because you should be able to leave the room and still have all your employees do the work. But I guess a couple hundred years is kind of a different thing. The other mummies are created and feel that they are powerful and they want to start the, the fight, but Horus counsels taking their time. Generals recommend there being more mummies and 24 are selected in the next thousand years. And that's actually a common occurrence if it pops up slightly more often than every 50 years. At some point, one of the mummies, uh, Ishmael, says, screw this noise, and leaves. And all other mummies that depart from Horus's company are now known as Ishmaelites. We get an aside on whether mummies were recruited or drafted. Early on, all were groomed for their role and expected it to come. Later, it was performed on the unwilling who had just been recently killed. Kabiris in Europe writes down the spell of life and fragments flit about. The Shemsu Heru try and destroy it and any mummy that was created with kind of this variant spell of life is known as a Kabiri. Time goes on, the Toreador arrive, the Cult of Hermes arrives, and some wonder if these hermetic mages are Thoth. The cult grows weak and full of hedge mages and finally Set infiltrates and kills all of the members of Horus' cult. Bane mummies are created after Set gets a hold of the Spell of Life, but in haste, the ritual was only partial and creates monsters. Later, Horus reawakens. Egypt is part of the Roman world, and Horus realizes that he can't fight the same way. We find out that Set went to the Second City, which may have been within Egypt's borders, the Second City and Vampire Enoch. We now get a differentiation between Bane mummies and the kind of other potential servants of Apophis that were created. Horus gathers all the mummies together and says they need to prepare for war. The Great Rite is removed from mortal hands as as Horace says, it's not worth it. Having other people that can't die out there just kind of complicates our war against Set. Horace dies sometime in the mid-20th century and returns unusually soon thereafter. And we get the idea that we are in an era where Horus may call for war that has a certain kind of apocalyptic twinge to it. I think this, this section is pretty good. It outlines a lot of history. Does a much better job of weaving this game into a coherent whole as part of a integrated world of darkness, which some people will like and some people won't. I liked the apocalyptic tinge to it. And my fan theory is that Horus saw the coming of Anthelios, the red star. And that was the thing where he's like, we might have to do something. Apophis returns. I don't actually know. What'd you think of, of chapter one, Adam? Yeah, a lot of good writing here. We get the origin story again with some changes and some greater detail. I think it's interesting that the authors took seriously their commitment to make mummies integrate well with the rest of the world of darkness. And so in this origin story, the were-creatures are involved, the wraiths are involved, the, the changelings are involved, although it's, it's hard to involve changelings very close in much of uh, non-changeling affairs. I like this story, but I mean, I gotta be honest, when I compare this to the origin story in the first book, I think that sort of clicked better for me. So I think in my games, I would probably use a few more elements from the first origin uh, story. But nice to see everybody involved in this one. The children of Osiris are given a new origin now. They start with Osiris himself rather than the vampire that Osiris sired named Ketamon. I actually prefer to start things with Ketamon. I, I think that just works better for me. It, it's more appealing to me to start with Ketamon. The rite of rebirth is now listed, as, well, I mean, it's described as not only being sphere magic, but it is sphere magic with a crucial component of knowledge that comes from one of the ferrymen of the wraiths. So there is very 
closely guarded rare wraith knowledge that is required to make the rite of rebirth actually work. And I think it was a good idea for the authors to mention this because we need to explain why the rite of rebirth was not just discovered by other talented mages. If it's just sphere magic, it seems like some other mages could sort of, you know, hear about it, uh, think about the principles, and sort of do it again, so to speak. And so this explains why that has not really happened. You have to have very crucial wraith knowledge, which is very difficult for mages to get. So that worked. The cult of Isis was re-established when Horus left Egypt. Uh, this new incarnation of the cult of Isis does not know the rite of rebirth. This is now very carefully guarded knowledge by Horus. I think there were some nice expansions on pieces of shadow history from the first mummy book, so it was very nice to see that. The authors wanted to add more mummies that are not Egyptian, so they added in the Kibiri mummies. They also added in what they called the Others with a capital O, and that is something mummies that had a very different rite of rebirth to, to create them, and they, are, they have powers that come from other cultures, and so they are big unknowns. What I want to know is, for the Kibiri mummies, how do they learn their, their Hekaw magic? Because they are at a, a strong disadvantage there. And so I think the only way to really make this work is for a storyteller to say that the Kibiri mummies must have worked out some kind of arrangement with the Ishmaelite mummies long ago, because otherwise I can't understand how the Kabiri mummies are going to have any Hekaw magic worth talking about. They, they must have traded local area knowledge to the Ishmaelites in exchange for their magic books or, or something like that. And so if, if I give that explanation, things click a lot better for me. But I'm ready to take a look at Chapter 2. Chapter 2, The World of Mummy. We get some more information on the various types. We get some basic information about the Shemsu Heru. They follow the Sebayet, the body of didactic literature, which is mostly the fragment of Isis and other ancient manuscripts. They have received the proper great rite as practiced across 3,000 years before being discontinued, created by Anubis and given to Thoth and then passed on to Isis. And they follow the, the Code of Horus. So they're officially a World of Darkness group because they have a set of formal rules that people may or may not follow. So that's, that's you need that on the ticket to officially join. We get some information on the Kabiri. They are not tied to the Shimshu Heru. They use a different form of the Spell of Life and they've used it for at least 2,000 years. Horus, though, thought he destroyed the last in the Renaissance, but Winthrop Murray of the Arcanum was the last. And they number about 12. The number of known ones is 12. They tend to be great scholars, we get a stereotype section. Boy, howdy, do I love, of any technology introduced in a game's rulebook, overly simplistic, pithy, snarky opinions of one group for the other <laughs> is a real world of darkness innovation, and I wish more games did it. We get information on the children of Apophis, which is to say the Bane mummies. They only number seven. Time in the Underworld has twisted them. They can be called on by Sedites, but they must negotiate this. I like the fact that it said, just kind of as a throwaway line, that it is said that they may have Set's true name and vice versa, which kind of keeps them at the standoffish detente, like, Set, you want to start shit? We're, we're ready if you want to. Okay. They think the world must be destroyed and recreated. Thanks, Nafandi. They seek the great right to make more. They tend to hide their deformities under masks and robes. We get information among the on the Ishmaelites, those who have just declined to serve Horus. They are more numerous in the Greek and Roman era, and the Kabiri remind the Ishmaelites of themselves, but they think they're owed some deference. One, uh, because they're older. Two, more or less because racism. The Horus declares an end to new mummies being created in the 2nd century CE. Those created 
after that follow Horus are considered to be second-class citizens. They selectively enforce the Code of Horus. They try and kind of more or less get away with what they can outside of what they consider the, to be the core meaning. And there is 42 in total plus Horus, but not all have remained loyal. Then we get the others from a variety of culture. Horus just refers to them as the others. Some transcend when they die. Some become obliterated. And we just kind of get vague references. Later on in Mummy the Resurrection, we will get the Capacocha, the South American mummies, and the East Asian mummies as well, just kind of as two examples of that. We then get some information on the Code of Horus. I am the Lord your God. Worship, wait, sorry. Um, I am Horus, your father, the first among the reborn. Heed my words, always cute. Combat the minions of Apophis in all their diverse forms at all times, for they are the opponents of Ma'at. This is the one that all mummies tend to agree on. Consort not with the accursed, for they are the brood of Apophis, which they're like, well, that's rich. Literally, the person that we're fighting for became a mummy, so how about them apples? And they also mention it's like, they're around for a while, we're around for a while, we're, we're going to be friends. Or at least we're going to spend time together. Acknowledge your kinship and ma'at with one another. Never shall one of the Shimsu Haro turn away another in need. If it's a real emergency, they'll help each other. But still, there's a lot of bickering and infighting from across several millennia of working together. Let not a mortal worship you for the time of gods has passed, nor let the mortal population learn of our existence. Again, they kind of point out that that's cute. They're like, Horus, you had a mortal cult. You started the cult of Isis. Just putting that out there. Seek not to create others like us. Once again, that's Rich Horus. You made a whole bunch of copies of us, but I guess you're special again. We then get the reality of this, where combating Apophis is universal, and everything else is kind of negotiable. They remind us that the first mummy, in fact, was actually just kind of a rando farmer that they're like, let's see what this works. And it also raises the question of, if our job is to uphold Ma'at, does the perpetual existence of a mummy upset that sense of balance. We get some information on their relationship with other creatures in the world of darkness. The vampires, as I mentioned, also understand eternity and there's someone to talk to. The changing breeds, they get along with the silent striders. The bastet are useful when they can be roused from their bacchanalia. It takes many years to reform and renew a body that has been digested and they point out expelled by an angered mokole. So I like that just kind of as a uh, word to the wise. They say that the euthanatoi fascinate them. We an exception or an abomination which I like because it mirrors the text in the first Euthanatoi tradition book saying, mummies, monsters, or have they really figured some stuff out about the wheel? Who knows? It mentions that the chorus views Apophis as an agent of Yaldabaoth, the, the dark god of the Nefandi, which is just kind of this line that exists in one or two places in Mage that, that no one ever really runs with. Maybe in my eventual episode on Gnosticism in Mage, we'll talk about Yaldabaoth more. The Restless Dead also... The restless dead, which is to say wraiths, they go to, since mummies go to Amenti, the dark kingdom of sands, they're seemingly the only ones that go there, which is kind of interesting, which makes me wonder what happens if like an old school worshiper of the Egyptian deities dies and becomes a wraith, do they go to Amenti in the underworld? It also mentions that none of the Shemsu Heru have ever transcended, which is a game term in wraith for the process of resolving all your ties to the living world and then kind of moving on. We don't get a huge amount about the information, but they're like, the Sundering is an upheaval of Mahat. And you're like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> we get some information about mortal groups, the Cult of Isis. Their peak of power was in the Middle Kingdom. So like we're talking like 4,000 years ago, Christianity pushed it underground. It welcomes all, but is hierarchical. Historically, the high priest was a true mage, but there have been century spans where the people in charge were just hedge mages. There are a few true magi that 
ultimately join. It began to grow after being centered in Alexandria. They guard the bodies of the dead and fight Apophis. We get information about the Arcanum, who hoards knowledge with no distinct purpose. One member is one of the Undying. A copy of Kabiri's secret writings may be in the Axis Mundi Library, which is the lead library for the Arcanum. They also give recommendation to avoid the Society of Leopold, which is the group of hunters, at least in this edition, associated with the, with the Catholic Church. We find out that the Orphic Circle, which is interested in the afterlife, mostly includes supernaturals, but has a lengthy oath of secrecy and kind of this Byzantine internal structure that has made it hard to uh, penetrate. Within the world itself, there are some that are still in Egypt and those that there tend to practice sorcery. Within Europe, Switzerland is the center of activity in that that is where Horus is located. We are given the advice to avoid Eastern Europe, which I assume is a reference to the Zemisi and Kapala in the Carpathians and not just a general statement of like, screw the Balkans. <laughs> but if they want to have a weird thing, that's fine. It mentions that the Americas have their own mummies. Would have loved more information on that. Ultimately, we don't get it in this book. That happens. And that brings us through kind of the chapter two setting tour. Adam, what did you think about that? The expanded terminology with the uh, Sebayet and the Code of Horus uh, fleshes out Mummy Society very nicely. I think the authors did a great job on that. Uh, that's something storytellers can grab onto and use in their games intelligently. The Bane Mummy motivation on page 35 brings them more in line with Nefandi, which I, I thought was interesting. This is, uh, mummies are supposed to cross over well with other World of Darkness games, you know, before 2000 when they had a different point of view on that. And this um, view of the mummies about the universe and their obligation to, to end it in a certain way, it makes it easier for them to meet and work with Nefandi. Doesn't mean they always play nicely together, of course, but it does help them to work together. And so I, I thought that was interesting. Someone who really likes mage and might want to tie mummy into my mage games, uh, this is another way that I can do that. Bane mummies are now searching for the twisted rite of rebirth that creates Bane mummies. Of course, I also thought this was a, a clever idea on the parts of the authors because this explains why the Bane mummies continue to work with the followers of Set. It's because Set or, or one of his you know, older main lieutenants is holding on to this information hidden away somewhere and the Bane mummies want to get that information so they keep working with the followers of Set hoping that they can get some clues or get alone in a room with the right elder vampire so they can beat it out of them and so th that's why they've been continuing to work together for so many years. The section on vampires and were creatures and what mummies think of them is well done. The mage section I think shows too much knowledge of mage thinking on the parts of the mummies. The mentions of Euthanatos and Choristers is very nice. There's no mention of the Hermetics. I thought that was very odd. The first mummy book did a good job of, of explaining how Hermetic magic and mummy magic has a lot of similarities. And because of that, there are reasons for the mummies to notice the Hermetics. But we don't see it in this book. The Cult of Isis is uh, mentioned again here. They're presented as low-powered allies. There are very few, if any, mages in the current Cult of Isis. Little benefit for true mages to find by joining. We should also mention here that the cult of Isis is mentioned on page 35 of Sorcerer Revised, which was one of the revised edition books for mage, and it gives a very similar presentation of the cult of Isis there. However, as I reread it, I, as a mage fan, was unhappy because it takes the actual cult of Isis that Horus created and keeps an eye on, 
and it conflated it with these other cults to ISIS as you know just religious movements, and it, it sort of stirred them all together. And so, reading through that page thirty-five of Sorcerer Revised, it as a storyteller, you have to kind of pick it apart and say, okay, this is this one, that is that one, let's keep this straight. But interesting to see that lined up. Now, I remember when Terry and I were talking about Book on the Arcanum for World of Darkness, and there's a section there where it talks about this uh, mysterious member who uh, has an unusually long life, and he seems to have be unusually well-informed. And so I was uh, noticing that the book was written by James Estes, and it of the year of the uh, Hunter books. It was the one that tied in with Mage. So I thought, aha, that old guy who's been around so long in the Arcanum, I'll bet he's a Mage. And I was completely wrong because here in chapter two of Mummy Second Edition, it tells us that Arcanum member who's uh, living for so long is a Kabiris mummy. And because he is there, uh, Horus has told Shemsu Heru, hands off the Arcanum. They know too much. They've got a powerful player in there. It's not cross the streams. Just, just stay away from the Arcanum. Mummies in Egypt guard potentially dangerous uh, magic objects and secrets. This was not mentioned, at least that I can remember, in the first Mummy book. So this gives us some interesting uh, suggestions for plot elements. The, the mummies who stayed behind in Egypt are guarding valuable knowledge and objects. And so they have sort of a, a special job within the Shemsu Heru. I thought that was interesting to play with. Horus now moves to Switzerland around the year 1700 instead of hundreds of years earlier. So I, the more modern Switzerland was the one that appealed to Horus in second edition. After reading this chapter, I want to know why can't we get some recent victories or setbacks in the war against Set? It seems like after centuries, there's going to be some highlights this went really well. This went really badly. We're still remembering it. This would be the chapter to give that to me. And I didn't see a lot of that. So I was, I was a little disappointed on that one. But let's turn to chapter three. I would just like to know, speaking of mummies and the depletion of your Ba energy over time, we did the, the episode on Halls of the Arcanum came out four years and one week ago. So, yep, I just lost a point of Ba there. We've been doing this for a while. Chapter three is entitled Characters. Once again, we get 753 for attributes and 201510 because you're old for abilities. In addition to that, you get 30 freebie points. This is a perfectly fine template to me if you want to play a incredibly competent mortal. If you're just like, you're a mortal, but you're not stupid and you want to have an action hero or something closer to that, I think that would be fine. One of the key changes to me now is... In Mummy First Edition, I really liked that it presented intelligence as more being a function of memory. And now memory is its own virtue along with integrity and joy. Ba is still the result of a single die roll at character creation, so put on your lucky shoes for that one. Your additional names are formalized, starting with a current name, which is what you're known to by mortals, your known name, which was the name in your first name, your life in your first life, or your and then your ren or true name, as well as wanting your the year of your birth. Jobs, sure, we get several pages of jobs that you may have had. Uh, the art on page 55 seems to show off someone who is very pleased with some plastic surgery that they had done. And we get new natures and demeanors. Masquerader, you get willpower when you resolve something without anyone finding out. I like this one. Recognition seeker, anyone who realizes that you're not a mortal gives you an opportunity to get 
to get willpower back. That seems like a real easy way to get willpower back in the modern world, depending on how polite or generous your storyteller wishes to be. Wanderer moves from place to place. This doesn't seem like it would work great in a in a group chronicle long term, but eh, anytime you get new natures and demeanors that aren't just like slight variants of previous natures and demeanors is great. We get our new traits again. Thanatology is back. Five dots. Thanatology is still knows the secrets with a question mark at the end in this kind of I'm Ron Burgundy up talk. Five points in mythology is listed as being Joseph Campbell, which I assume means you just wildly misunderstand the stories of other cultures <laughs> and make equivalences where none exist. But, but, <laughs> but yeah, Joseph Campbell, the official anti-mascot of Mates the Podcast. We get backgrounds. Mummies can get arcane. I just assume this is James S. He's going, arcane's cool. They get arcane. And Graham Davis being, I don't know what arcane is. Sure. They get artifacts. A new thing, journal, which adds to memory rolls and a, at five dots, you have a complete record of all of your lives that you put onto CD-ROMs and wrote a search engine for. I'm mostly impressed that with five dots of journal and in ancient Egypt, you had CD-ROMs. So that's pretty good. I assume the journal is more, more recent, but like, that's a real narrow window that someone woke up and goes, oh, I need to digitize everything. And then we also get tomb, which is a combination hideaway and place to regenerate. At five dots, you have an intact pyramid, but I like that they don't specify that it's like an Egyptian pyramid. So maybe you're like the head of a pyramid scheme or alternatively, you have a very nice room at the Luxor in Las Vegas. And that's, that's what I'm going to run with mine. It could be a Mayan pyramid. Yeah, good. Yes. Good point. It could be, it could be a Babylonian ziggurat. There's a lot of pyramid or pyramid like things that you could have. So this one's three-sided. These feel weird. Yeah. Um, we get information on what the virtues represent. Memory prevents the loss of self. Losing all of your memory can result in madness. It is rolled to resolve a crisis of self. Memory is also a cap on your ability to what you recover when you reincarnate. So anytime you come back and an ability is greater than, I can't remember if it was intelligence or memory, you roll to see if you kind of lose down. So if you had five dots in academics or something, but you only have uh, three dots in memory or something like that is kind of your cap and you need to roll to see if you remember the rest of it. Joy, which is that which keeps a character grounded, it specifies this isn't niceness. And the example they gave is Bane mummies will be overjoyed to flay someone alive. And it represents the ability to adjust to the modern world, which I, I kind of liked. Joy kind of feels like the anti-Hirano for werewolf fans. Integrity, which is the adherence to, to values, and it's rolled whenever you do something particularly callous. A botch on a virtue roll, and this was a system that I thought was kind of neat. A botch on a virtue roll causes you to gain a derangement. And we get this whole list of little psychological ticks and flaws that you can pick up over time. I thought it would have also been interesting if these could have been supernatural, being like, oh, you were so joyless. You now have like the echoes flaw or something like that. But that's just me. I want everything to be a little bit weirder. And you can spend a point of temporary willpower to overcome the derangement. And it says you can ultimately buy off a derangement at the time that you receive the derangement, the storyteller rolls 2d10, adds the results together. And once you have bought off the derangement that number of times, so I roll a six and I roll a seven, total of 13. Once I have bought off that derangement 13 times with 13 points of temporary willpower, the derangement goes away. And I think that's a neat system. I would be fine using that for like 
quiet and and other uh, systems like that, we find out that humanity acts as a cap on the number of dice that we can roll in social situations. And the humanity scale here is a little bit different than the one presented to me in Vampire, where in Vampire, humanity 10 was like the most saintly of vampires will get this. Here, humanity 10 is compassionate. So <laughs> so it feels like humanity 10 is what a, a good person would be as opposed to a truly exceptional. Alternatively, one could interpret that as the most saintly of vampires is merely the equivalent of a compassionate mortal. And that's also fine by me. <laughs> You're like, he was the most compassionate vampire I had ever met. He had only killed 17 children. Yeah. And uh, Sekum is now on a new scale. Previously, like an old Nintendo game, it went between zero and 99, but now it goes between zero and 10. Your Ka again starts at five. We have some merits and flaws. Anachronism has you rolling intelligence and the number of net failures is your modifier for a role involving the modern world. I'm not entirely sure what this means. I assume you roll it against difficulty six. Technophobe is bigger and is a four point flaw with a two point die penalty on anything based on steam, internal combustion, or electricity. And I like taking this to a ridiculous extent in that your character has difficulty controlling lightning. Just one of those newfangled weather phenomenon that all the kids are dealing with these days. We get an aside on what the Great Rite does to various night folk. And this section, this is one of those sections where I'm like, this is far too detailed than anyone could possibly need. Give me more. But vampires can't have the Great Rite. Werewolves, they get one free death. They come back once. And I'm like... Who? Sure. Mages will lose access to true magic, which I like. They kind of listen here like, yeah, you can do it. But what's the point of coming back if you don't get like, you know, real magic? <laughs> Are you really even alive then? And I'm like, yes, that's my James Estes. Wraiths get met by Anubis, who leads them to Amenti if they're very recently dead. So I like the idea that if you cast the spell of life on someone who otherwise would have formed a wraith shortly after their death, they don't become a mummy so much as like you bought them a condo in a different underworld. And they're like, well, this is confusing. I don't even speak Coptic. Well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so we get rules for the the other mummies. We and Much like the technocracy has a different word for everything, the Kabiri have different terms for certain things. We get some more rules. Ba is now depleted based kind of on how hard you lived. So it's like, yep, if your life is full of prostitutes and whiskey, you can blow through all that Ba in 10 very enjoyable years. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks, Ba. <laughs> it's like if you're a boring nerd who stays at home, yeah, you can get a couple centuries out of it. But again, what's the point, especially if you don't have real magic? I'm like, James Estes, are you living vicariously through your readers? We also, as opposed to in the previous book where it's like, oh, when you die, you just keep rolling damage dice to see how messed up your body is. And they're like, oh, we're, we're going to cap that at five. <laughs> if it's real messy, let's not take that to logical extremes. We get a more defined system on how to do missions in the underworld to recover things. And the biggest thing that kind of comes out of this is the fact that if you're kind of restricted to a mentee, 
it does kind of narrow some of those options unless a storyteller is familiar with other ways to have the character go out and explore the other worlds. So one of the things that happens across editions is the other worlds gets much more rigorously defined than 1E where it's just someone going, ooh, and kind of waving their hands, which is a, a way to do it. But here it is much more tied to the Wraith cosmology and the low umbra, as it were. So, and that kind of brings us to a conclusion on chapter three. What did you think about chapter three? Uh, the virtues have been cleaned up. Uh, Sekum has been simplified. Uh, mummies now have humanity like vampires, which I, I got to say does work for me. I mean, they live for centuries. They have supernatural abilities. I'm okay with them having the humanity score. Occupations are now purely social among mummies. I think there's too many occupations in this book. Although occupations are less important, the weight of years can make any mummy good at Hekaw. And this makes me think the mummies uh, recorded their magic in books rather than in the, the first edition book where it makes it very clear if mummies want to learn magic, they go find one of their own who knows it well and they spend time with them. I, uh, the way they change the occupations here, it, it, it would, as a storyteller, it would make me assume that uh, the mummies have uh, their own books that they pass between each other. But I like the new nature, demeanor, options. A lot of skills created for Mage the Ascension are added to this book. The authors agree with me. Mages and mummies have things in common. There are six new skills. I'm not going to go into so much detail, uh, but the of these six new skills, I thought Thanatology was the useful one. The other five skills are debatable. Uh, make your own call. Backgrounds in this chapter, are they did a much better job than they did with Mummy First Edition. Giving Arcane to mummies, as Terry mentioned a few minutes ago, it's, it's a storyteller call. I would say no, but I would not get upset with storytellers who say yes. You could make an argument on either side. I just think Arcane is, for me, it works better as something that is truly unique to mages and their relationship with their knowledge of the spheres. But I'm fine with the artifact here. And I, I say that because when you look at the artifact background in this chapter three, it is very light. There's just not a lot of information. It's like there's five levels. It's like, okay, go. And as a storyteller who's planning on using this with mage, I'm really okay with that. Uh, there are artifacts in Mage that have five levels. I, I know how to uh, make them as, as a storyteller for my games, and so I can use information from there, just make it a little less Mage-specific. Uh, also, uh, there are, in the next chapter, Hekaw abilities, you know, you might say spells, and they have they go in levels from one to five. So you can pick out a level three Hekaw spell and say, okay, level three artifact, it does this Hekaw ability. So the fact that the artifact's background is very light in this chapter as a storyteller, I'm really fine with that. I know how to handle it, and, and I'm satisfied. There's a tomb background that, that Terry spoke of. I thought this was a very good idea and very appropriate. I think it's it's too bad it couldn't make it into the first edition book, but that's why I bought the second edition book. So yeah, very good job on mummy backgrounds here. And as uh, Terry gave you the details on page 71, they have a rule for overcoming derangements. I, I thought that was, that was uh, very intelligent, very well done, uh, something I would like to use in my games. And as Terry mentioned, yeah, I, I might actually break out that rule and, and consider using it in other games. You don't want to make it too easy for players to buy down the flaws that they choose at character creation. I mean, you're, that's supposed to be kind of a, a weighty thing. But but still, for other derangements picked up during play, I, I think it's nice to be able to let players buy those down. And also, when you think about mummies, they live for century after century after century. If they're building up derangements and they can't get yeah. rid of them, 
then after like, you know, 2,000 years, Horace is going to look at all his seriously deranged allies and say, well, that didn't work. <laughs> Let's find Rite of Rebirth version two and start all over again, because, you know, after a few hundred years, it just don't work. And so, yeah, it's nice to have an explanation of how after 2,000 years of, of life and unlife, uh, mummies are still functional and ready to go. <laughs> so I, I have no problem with this uh, rule on uh, buying down derangements. So on to chapter four. On to chapter four, entitled Hakau. We're presented with the Hakau again. This time, Ushapti is not just figurines, but specifies that it can also be used in the underworld. That's kind of one of the more basic shifts that happens. Spells are changed. It's now just a path roll against a difficulty, and Sekum can be used to increase the level of an effect. Material components are now flavor as opposed to being specified, which I'm fine with that. I do miss the strangely specific thing of like, to do this effect, you need a single tier of a frog who watched the series finale of Star Trek Next Generation. And you're like, that's awfully specific, but okay, I guess I'm going to get on that. Now your starting spells are the number of dots in all paths times your Sekum, which can then be the sum of the difficulties of the spells. I look at some of these other game lines and people are like, mage is too complicated. I'm like, oh, is it? <laughs> How many taints do I have to keep track of now? Spells can be acquired with uh, experience points or they can be found, which as Adam mentioned, writing it down is now kind of a, a new important thing seemingly and going tome hunting seems like it could be a perfectly cromulent game type. Sekum recovery is no longer tied to stamina, preventing stamina from kind of being the the secondary power stat, but meditation plus the highest Hakao path that you have. This is rolled against difficulty nine. So this is not a particularly active way to do it. And in a lot of cases, just getting the basic point from uh, kind of chilling for a day may be more effective. We get a glimmer that the underworld play is now more essential and less freeform. We get information on how the Ba and Ka can use spells in the underworld, we get updated systems for stats above five, which I'm always a sucker for. I think these are fun. They specifically mention that the secondary benefits of this, like the fact that at dexterity six, you functionally gain a dot of celerity and can do two moves in one term are mummy specific abilities and that a Methuselah or a mage using life would not get these benefits from increasing it above five. I might do it anyway, cause I'm a real big fan of it. We get information on the paths and a lot of these are very similar to what we had in mummy one and they just frequently have a few more examples that are in there. We get information on tonics, which restore lost health. We finally have health potions in the world of darkness. If you have a mummy that is talented in potions and alchemy, we can finally do a world of darkness dungeon crawl. It's everything we need is there. You just need a mummy in the part with like a bucket full of Sekum. And underneath Doisetep, there's the dungeon. Yep. <laughs> We get the Buckle of Isis, which is worth five dice of counter magic, and that's kind of cool. So I'm assuming that's Ancient Egyptian Premium, because I just like mixing things together like that. The one thing I will note, this is my for the episode where I put my hands on my hips and go, well, well actually. Meteorites, it mentions that when you summon meteorites, they can light things 
on fire. Uh, meteorites, when they hit, are often quite cold. Sure, they get heated in the atmosphere, but they've been at around three degrees Kelvin for most of their lifetime. So only very small parts of the surface tend to heat up and get ablated off during the re-entry process. So that's my well actually for for this book. And that's chapter four, Hakao. What did you think about the redone re-magic system, Adam? Well, like you, I noticed that page 83 tells us only one attribute boost at a time. First edition allowed an amulet and alchemy to boost the same attribute at the same time. So that you could say that nerfing the attribute boosts. As a storyteller, I would re-enter that first edition approach, try it in my games, and see if the players get out of hand or not. If nothing goes seriously wrong, I I might allow two boosts uh, at the same time. You have to remember that the amulet boost can boost it for a long time, whereas the alchemy boost is a short-term boost. It wears off pretty quick. So I'm not sure that's going to throw my games out of uh, out of balance, but I'd like to try it. And uh, again, as Terry said, the key ingredients for spells from the first edition book are not here. And that is one of the reasons I'm really holding on to my first edition book, because as you flip through and read some of those entries, some of those are, are quite interesting and uh, give you some neat ideas for scenes in your games. So yeah, I'm not getting rid of my first edition book anytime soon. Page 93, The Buckle of Isis is an amulet. It seems to be the only way that mummies can work against sphere magic, if I'm reading this entry correctly. Uh, Storytellers might want to rethink this. I addressed this in our last episode, but to be brief, I think that mummies should be able to use their magic to work against sphere magic to protect their own minds and their own bodies. But if a mage is using sphere magic against, say, an area or a group of people, then I think it should be much harder for Heka mummy magic to work against that. But uh, that's that's my approach. Under the listing for Major Ward, I would adjust the cost for that down to times 10. I think this listing here is perhaps a little more expensive than is practical, but uh, playtesting, of course, would reveal the answer to all of us. It mentions that a mummy can separate its boss spirit from its body before it dies, when it's still in the what you call the life cycle as opposed to the death cycle. It mentions that the bog goes down to the low umber where the dead go. And as a storyteller, I would just say, no, if a mummy separates its baw and it, it has not died, then the baw would go into the high umbra. And gotta admit, I am biased. I do kind of like the idea of mummies it's and mages going umbra. around the high umbra. It's like I see the universe as recognizing mummies as either alive or dead and treating them accordingly. But that, that's my approach. What I was wanting to see in this chapter and did not see is a way for mummies to use their Heka magic to get Sekum out of a mage node. It seems like that should be addressed. There should be some alchemy or some Ren Heka, uh, some way that a mummy can replenish Sekum from a node. Other World of Darkness storytellers may disagree with me there, but the way I'm reading this book, the way I would interpret it, I think Quintessence could uh, Sekum to mummies. So I would add some sort of method for mummies to do that. And of course, uh, if you want to really get in uh, detailed with, you know, this resonance is good for mummies and this resonance is bad for mummies. So mummies have to be careful which node they tap. Um, Yeah, I'm fine with that. Certainly not against it. Uh, That's it for chapter four, all about mummy magic. So on to chapter five. Chapter five is entitled The Underworld and talks about the underworld. It says that mummies are creatures of two worlds and 
a lot of games say that that's like bloody blah, blah creatures of blood of this and that and but mummy really doubles down on it where it's like no 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 you lived a life as a mortal you're gonna live a life as a not mortal in egyptian belief you die the 42 judges of ma and osiris judge you your heart is weighed versus a feather which is the sign of ma'at if it's balanced you get to move on which makes me wonder like it seems to be a yes no thing but like my initial reading was like if it's heavier than the feather you are weighed down with sin. But this is me kind of projecting a later notion on it, like that we get in Christianity and Jainism of like sin weighing down the heart. And I like the idea that like, it's also bad if your heart is lighter than the feather. Like the judges of Ma'at are like, okay, nerd, try hard. We're not letting you in. You're going to make us all look bad. Be good, but not like too good. And then Amamat eats, eats you. <laughs> it talks about how organs are put in canoptic jars, that pitches involved. There's natron. 450 yards of fabric is required to properly wrap someone. And like, I wish we lived in the world where Egyptian culture persisted more into the modern era, like with a continuous thread as regards these practices. And instead of people saying like, ah, yeah, we, we, went the whole nine yards for this. We said we went the whole 450 yards for, for this, like we were burying a pharaoh. The Egyptian underworld is referred to as Duat, and it was really boring early on. And I like the way they present it, where it's like the first mummies, the first Egyptians died, and there, there really wasn't anyone there. And they're like, is this our eternal afterlife? If so, real boring. <laughs> so I really like that it addressed that question. They refer to the dark penumbra as Neterketet. The shroud is thinner in Egypt. The tempest wasn't the tempest yet. That doesn't occur, I think, until the third great maelstrom. Anpu or Anubis eventually would work with Charon to form the ferrymen. And that is a connection that ultimately comes back in the book End Times for Wraith, where we get information on the Oath Circle of the Ore, which is just one of the most fascinating groups, in my opinion, in the world of darkness. They set out from Neterkatet to, as they had heard of a promised land, and they find Amenti, a mini Egypt within the Tempest. Others are like, this is nice, I'll give you that, but it ain't the promised lands. And they continue exploring from there, which I think is implied to be they reach the far shores and uh, the various afterworlds that could theoretically be there, depending on whether or not you interpret the afterworlds in the high umbra and the afterworlds in the low umbra as, anyway, it gets complicated across editions. As invaders came and died, they fought for the Egyptian Shadowlands. Eventually, the Shadowlands themselves fall to the hierarchy and the tombs in the penumbra go silent. So this suggests to me that there are these like massive necropoli-like pyramids in the Egyptian underworld that still persist there, at least within the Shadowlands. Amenti is bisected by the River of Life, which is surrounded by lush fields. This is interesting in that generally when we read about the Tempest or the Sea of Shadows, we generally don't get any information on things that more or less live there, for lack of a better term. There's really not that much native flora and fauna outside your like random plasmids and uh, the reeds. Osiris is in Amenti. He is there and inviolable and unmoving. Amenti is also hard to find. We also get information on kind of how rebirth interacts with you being in the underworld. The fact that you're not a wraith actually changes things. For instance, you don't 
get access to Arkanoi. When you die, you're in the underworld and you call out to Anubis. Anubis may arrive after you face a challenge. You get one challenge and then Anubis comes and you're good. If you fail the challenge, Anubis takes a sweet time. Uh, no matter how you die, Anubis greets you and is like, hey bud, how you doing? You go to a menti, you get to do quests to pick up more spirit juice so you can respawn back at the control point. In video game terms, your ka can be spent to have your ka do various things near your body, but you're restricted to the Shadowlands and again within a certain distance of your body. Your ba can run around doing things. Both draw on the same attributes and abilities, but only one can use willpower at a time. Uh, if your ba is absolutely wrecked, it will eventually reform after about a century and like Anubis arrives and gives you a hot pocket and a cold compress to help you recover. So if you really, it, it, it goes to great lengths to say like, you can't die, die. The worst that can happen is you get so thoroughly dispersed that a century passes and then Anubis comes by with like a juice box and is like, you want to, you want to try that again there, bud? <laughs> it looks like you could use a little bit of help. It gives you a baggie of orange slices or something at halftime. And that, that is kind of the extent of it. It doesn't talk a lot about the involvement in Wraithly society, except to say, hey, these are the things that do and don't work on you are Arkanoi wise, it's like, hey, you're not actually dead. So like Moliate doesn't work on you or like you can't be soul forged, which is which is useful if you want to do a proper crossover game. But this was useful information. It was interesting. I would have liked more information about like what actually was in a menti. Like if I'm supposed to run around and do quests there, like I need some information. Like the implication here is that you're running missions that maybe has you go to Stygia or one of the other Dark Kingdoms, but I would want more information on what actually is in a menti and, and who's doing what there to to kind of run that. But otherwise, this this was fine. What did you think about Chapter 5, Adam? Uh, well, the mummy's death cycle gets much more detail in this book than the, the first mummy book. Other than avoiding the Shadowlands, they can join Wraith games. And as Terry said, they're not exactly the same as Wraiths, but, I mean, they can you know travel around with them and, and do things with them. So, yeah, if you're running a Wraith game, you can have someone say, well, I'm making a mummy in its death cycle. It's like, yeah, you, you can do that. that. That can work. A mummy can be a contact between a Wraith group and a group of, of living people uh, on Earth. And I think this can be very interesting. Uh, Wraith is one of those games that appeals to a lot of people, but it's harder to connect it with uh, the other World of Darkness games. Wraiths really do have several degrees of separation from you know, living normal people and uh, the vampires and were creatures they interact with. And so to have a mummy who can basically show up in a, in a game of, of you know, living characters and say, oh, that, that wraith group that uh, you've heard uh, rumors about, they, they might exist, and you wonder what their secrets are. Yeah, I, I just spent five years with them. Uh, what do you want to know? I mean, get out your notepad, and I'll, I'll tell you. And of course, you know, I make it sound silly, but uh, this, this can be a, a very valuable thing. I, I can just imagine a, a group of euthanatos in contact with a mummy and their jaws dropping, saying, what? You can just tell us all this stuff? <laughs> yeah, we're locking the door. You're never leaving. <laughs> and the mummy's like me and my big mouth, <laughs> but uh, but you know, jokes aside, uh, this is a really handy way for a storyteller to take information that uh, from the Shadowlands that uh, only wraiths know, and to actually make it available to living characters. And so, mummies can be a kind of bridge between uh, two different factions. I, I think they make it 
actually possible for a group of living, you know, World of Darkness characters to have some sort of a long-going alliance with a group of wraiths. And so wraiths can interfere in the mortal world a little more directly with the help of a mummy. I think they should have put something in the low umbra for the Kabiri. Kabiri, there's enough of them. They've been around long enough. I mean, they don't necessarily have to have their own realm like uh, Amenti, but I mean, there must be some society or, or network of alliances or special items they leave for each other that where they can convey you know just special kabiri club only messages to each other yeah, something like that yeah, give me something if there's a jury house kabiri... that just says no shemsu haru allowed or something <laughs> yeah like that. something <laughs> along those lines but i mean the kabiri mummies that they've been around for centuries actually not as long as the shemsu haru but you know, a lot of centuries they've had time to develop something for themselves in the low umbra whether it's a place or a society or a network of objects or, or something but uh, this chapter just doesn't give us anything it's like oh yeah the kabiri go there too and done it's like oh come on you know with this uh, with 141 pages you can give me a little more than that so that, that would be kind of fun for me but i don't want to complain too loudly this chapter did have a lot of good information and you know like i said for wraith fans uh, if they want to open it up uh, there's a lot they can do with this. So kudos to the authors for that. Well, let's move on to chapter six. It's a who's who of mummy society. We get information on three prominent mummies and templates for four sample mummy characters. We start off by noting there are now more than 43 mummies. Uh, mummy First Edition stated there were a total of 43 mummies in the world. 43 is now the number of Shemsu Heru, including Horus. The number of mummies is up to storytellers, but the text hints that there could be as many as 100. Horus is described first. Uh, here he doesn't have stats, but we're told his power is formidable. Elder vampires would think twice about confronting him directly. He lives in Geneva, Switzerland, where he wears well-tailored suits. Rumors circulate he has great resolve and is working hard on a new plan to assault his enemies. Did he gain insight during his last death cycle, or is he imbalanced? Jehenu is the boy mummy. He has had a 14-year-old body and the lousy nickname for thousands of years. Although he answers calls for help on occasion, it is clear to the Shemsu Heru that Jehenu's real goal is increasing his magical knowledge. In his current lifetime, he has become even more secretive and returned to Egypt. Some worry he is entering agreements with Horus's enemies for greater magical power. Perhaps a few thousand years of shaving jokes and being turned down by women can do that to a person. Neith was a great warrior in ancient Egypt in her many lifetimes. She has learned a great deal about martial arts and modern warfare. Her humanity has been noted as alarmingly low over many lifetimes. Horus uses her skills often and keeps an eye on her, but many worry that a disaster is coming before long. The first of the templates is the archaeologist. This is a mummy who moves in modern professional society among archaeologists and other scholars. It is fitting this is our first template because it will likely appeal to players who have an interest in ancient Egypt. This mummy works to keep modern people away from the ancient tombs that have not yet been discovered. There is mention of land rovers, high-caliber guns, and desert survival gear. A true adventurer. My problem is how this may not jive with actual mummies. The mummies of the World of Darkness know they do just fine when their tombs are discovered and dismantled. Their ancient beliefs in the necessity of keeping all their stuff safe to ensure the afterlife have been disproven to them for a long time. I think the mummies would take the truly valuable things out of their tombs and, while still wanting to keep them hidden, wouldn't put so much effort into preserving beliefs that proved to be untrue. Uh, thousands of years of life help people see you can't hold on to everything from your first 50 years on this earth. The vampire impersonator, 
is a Shemsu Heru member who lives among the kindred, the vampires. She keeps a close eye on their affairs and reports to Horus. When necessary, a dangerous vampire is taken out quietly. This template demonstrates how well mummies can mix into games of Vampire the Masquerade. I think it would appeal to a lot of people. The Guru friend is a Shemsu Heru who has drifted away from his former allies but keeps contact with them. He runs with the were-creatures and fights the worm of Werewolf the Apocalypse lore. He's going to need a lot of amulets to run with that crowd, but it isn't impossible. The character sheet has three dots in Renheka and none in amulets, which looks like an oversight. Amulets allow long-term attribute boosting, which is what a person needs to battle the enemy's were-creatures face. Finally, we have the recently reborn, another Shemsu Hero whose last death cycle was 2,000 years, depositing him in a world he can't understand. Most everything in modern times is very strange to this mummy. That's the whole concept. This may be interesting for a player, but it isn't likely to be something the other players will enjoy after the first game session. It's a gimmick that can get old fast. So that's our seven sample mummies. All seven are Shemsu Heru. No others, no Ishmaelites, no Kabiri. I understand the Shemsu Heru are the main appeal of this book, but with seven sample mummies, we should have seen someone from the other groups, if for no other reason than to suggest plot hooks revolving around how the mummy groups interact. Well, Terry, what did you think of chapter six? Chapter six, The Many Faces of Rebirth, again, 43 Shemsu Heru, and there's like a hundred others. And it's one of those weird moments like when we were reading Blood Dim Tides, where it's like, oh, by the way, Rokea may outnumber all other Garu combined. And you're like, well, that's kind of a mic drop that just kind of reframes everything <laughs> where it's like, yep, you're part of the small sacred fellowship. At best, you're a third of all mummies, which really makes you ask some very fundamental questions about who's been running around with the spell life. But eh, okay, it's kind of weird how obsessed they are with the, uh, the jihad. Fine. I like that it lists that under the, the boy mummy that like smallpox affects the soul specifically where it's like, ah, oh, yes, some, some illnesses affect the soul as well. It's like, I'm glad that we came up then with an inoculation against this thing that destroys the human soul. That's good. Neath the bloodthirsty lady warrior is nice. We get the archetype of the archaeologist. It says that you found their weaknesses by becoming one of them, which based on the art means that you became Eurotrash. You have a 30-odd three, which is arguably one of the least effective rifles ever created. They should have included stats for using it as a club. This has been Terry is overly judgy about gun choices in the World of Darkness day. Garu friend. I wish all the templates had just been of the form Garu friend. So you could have Garu friend. Vampire friend, mage friend, wraith friend, fairy friend. And that could have been this book's remarkably on-the-nose way of saying, just do crossover! <laughs> um, and I think I could have gotten behind that. I, I love that experience is still a checkbox. Do you experience something? Yep. I like the recently reborn talking about like the lengths that your cult had to go through to like get your body back. And this is something that Mummy the Resurrection kind of plays up more that I like. Like, what is happening to keep and maintain your body? Like, what is happening in the Cult of Isis to be like, anyone find this guy's arm yet? No, but we have it narrowed down to these four city blocks. It's like, oh, okay, well, let's get on that. So, <laughs> like, what? Why was it delayed? Something called COVID. We weren't allowed to go outside, so <laughs> it's very hard to find your elbow, my lord. But yeah, um, I hadn't considered what Adam said, where it's like, yeah, they only give us Shemsu Heru. 
And one of the weird things that happens, though, that like as you start when you have so many, so few descript ones, as you start defining them, there's like fewer and fewer to ultimately work with. I thought it was interesting that the templates also gave you a boss score. So I like the idea of being like, yep, I'm taking the form of recently reborn. Why is that? I want that Bob 10, everything else I can work with. Yeah, I, I don't know how a TV remote works and I've never seen a flush toilet, but <laughs> I got a lot of bot to figure it out in. But yeah, those were my thoughts on uh, ch- chapter six. Adam, what's in chapter seven? Well, chapter seven is for storytellers and warns players to stay away. So all of you listening to this podcast, if you're a player, stay away. The first section gives us a straight talk account of how mummies usually interact with other supernatural beings. Mummies have had more interactions with vampires than other supernatural types. This is easy to accept, as there are a lot of vampires. Plus, their long lives make them easier for mummies to relate to. The Shemsu Heru are supposed to oppose all vampires, but they're real enmities for the followers of Set and vampires who engage in similar pursuits. There are many relationships with vampires for a variety of reasons, but these are kept quiet from Horus. Uh, Kabiri and Ishmaelites are free to interact with vampires, but not always on friendly terms. Mummies are not currently working with were-creatures in any significant way. Mummies have heard of the worm and consider it another name for Apophis or Apap, the great serpent of Egyptian lore. If mummies made an arrangement with were-creatures, they would probably approach the Silent Striders, a tribe of werewolves, uh, the Babasti, a breed of werecats, or the Makole, were-reptiles. It states mummies consider the Ascension War of Mages to be another name for the struggle to restore Mott, that is, cosmic balance. Uh, there have been alliances to oppose Nefandi. Some mummies have joined the Ascension War and been recognized as capable wizards by mages. I had to, to disagree with the authors on one point. I really don't think the mummies would see the Ascension War as another name for restoring Mott. Uh, I think the mummies would view the Ascension War as a pointless, esoteric pursuit of mages who have lost touch with the concerns of normal people. It is probably also seen as a fancy term for the mages struggling for supremacy among themselves. I think the mummies would take note of mage groups that are fighting evil on a practical level. They would probably pay more attention to sects within traditions than the traditions themselves based on activity. Again, there's no mention of common beliefs or approach between mummies and hermetics. Uh, Mummies spend significant time among wraiths and know what they're up to. Some mummies get involved with wraith issues while others remain aloof. The Shemsu Heru battle Apophis's forces in the Low Umbra, but we get no details about what form that sort of struggle actually takes. If mummies mix with wraiths so much, I'd like to see some specific alliances or disputes. Mummies interact very little with changelings. Uh, They have no real opinions of them. Those darn mists. The Ishu Kith worked with mummies long ago, but there doesn't seem to be any alliances today. Mummies keep records so they can keep track of their descendants. Uh, They interact with them often, usually without revealing their true nature as mummies. Next is a look at Mummy Chronicles. The book acknowledges there are two ways to handle mummies, all mummy games and mixing them into other games. For all mummy games, we get four suggestions. Three of them are rather weak. The Shemsuheru do their thing. Yeah. The Kabiri want to make more Kabiri. Why? Don't know. The Shemsuheru, Ishmaelites, and Kabiri cooperate to solve a mystery. What is the mystery? That's mystery too. The fourth is a decent idea for the death cycle. Osiris is active for the first time in ages. He says an evil lurks beneath the sands of Amenti. The seldom explored edges of Amenti hold the secret of the realm's creation, which will help the players confront the problem. That sounded cool. We move on to mixing mummies into other games. We get an odd note that Shemsu Hero will have trouble working with vampires because they oppose them all. 
you know, two pages back, we read Shem Suhera work with vampires frequently, but keep it quiet from Horace. Was the proofreader on break? Uh, we get three concepts for mixing mummies with werewolves, mages, and wraiths. They're so brief, they aren't really helpful. The one about a mummy approaching a group of wraith heretics who follow ancient Egyptian ideas is the only one worth looking into. Uh, for crossover chronicles, we're advised to consider the common enemy approach. The first idea is to oppose a new pogrom of the technocracy that targets mummies and werewolves. Uh, I like a capable, informed technocracy, but I have a hard time believing the technocracy would be aware of mummies. When a mummy dies, the corpse looks very normal. Uh, I don't see how the technocracy would prove that mummies are anything more than hedge wizards. Uh, the idea of real, perfected reincarnation of that type is probably too much for technocrats to accept. The second idea is cooperate to fight Apophis. That is so general and vague, it almost shouldn't be here. Uh, third idea is the Sabbat trap the players in the sewer. Can the mummy keep the other players cooperating long enough to survive? Then we switch back to mummy-only chronicles and discuss the idea presented in the first mummy book, that is, a game that portrays the many lives of mummies. Uh, nothing worth mentioning is added to the concept here. Uh, storytellers are told to do their homework for the different eras of history. A sidebar argues mortal allies of mummies are important. It encourages us to get other World of Darkness books for rules on mortal characters and noumena. Noumena are powers that only mortals get. Vampires, werewolves, mages, etc. cannot learn noumena. It also gives a simple way to use Hekka rules in a toned-down way for mortals. In Werewolf the Apocalypse, a Fomori is a human who has a Bane spirit joined with them, creating a monster. The next section tells us Bane mummies are basically Fomori who have gained mummy status. Storytellers who want to make Bane mummy NPCs get better support in this book than the first mummy book. Uh, create the NPC according to regular mummy character creation rules, then assign powers and taints appropriate to Bane mummies. Seven powers and six taints are given. Considering there are only seven Bane mummies known to exist, I'm fine with what we're given. Powers in this context are things that make a Bane mummy dangerous. Taints are curses that make Bane mummies disgusting, but don't usually help them. Next up is four NPCs complete with stats. Hetch Abehu is a former soldier who is now a figure in high finance. He has been loyal to Horus for ages. He has been appointed the vizier of North America. His Ren Haka rating is five, so you might want to approach him carefully. Amam the Devourer appears again. He's a Bane mummy with a huge mouth who swallows opponents. With his high physical attributes and four in amulets, this is a tough customer. Neferu Kate was a queen. She has drifted away from Horace's crusades and lives in New York City. She has a huge collection of rare occult books and works to increase her knowledge. She makes a great contact or advisor for mummies or mages. Emil Tabasi is a hedge wizard who leads the cult of Isis. He has occasional contact with Horus, but is aware Horus has little interest in the cult of Isis today. I think these sample NPCs are useful for storytellers. Uh, we finish with the page offering Egyptian names. This time around, we get names for kings and queens, along with other names. Not all of the names have translations, but the authors did what they could. So, Terry, what do you think of Chapter 7? My first question on chapter seven is what is happening on page 140 in that art? It looks like a zombie is slowly being lured away by its favorite staff or something like that. Or a very slow chase scene is unfolding between a man who is slightly harried with a tie trying to figure out what to do with a shambler behind him. But besides that, the tie section just kind of felt 
kind of perfunctory. The thing that I would be most curious about is over time, we get other ways for mages to kind of live forever, of which being a lich is the most notable one. I would kind of be fascinated what their view is and how those two would get along. I find it interesting that there really isn't any mention of if you're old enough that the gauntlet wasn't really a thing, that there there's no interaction really between mummies and spirits, middle umbral or, or high umbra. I'd be curious to see if there were anything about that. Yes, it, it brings up games where you gump, jump through time. This is something that Mummy the Cursed, the Chronicles of Darkness variant of this game purportedly does more on, but th this chapter uh, left me certainly wanting more. I thought there would be a, a little bit more insight to be provided. I do find the comment on page 141 interesting, where it's like, the Egyptian mortuary ritual speaks of the 42 gods of Ma'at who receive the negative confessions of a deceased in the hall of Ma'at where they are then judged. The fact that there are 42 Shemsu Heru is, of course, sheer coincidence. I like that little note there. I always like having names to work with because that is how you prevent things where like, what's his name? A Boblin the Goblin. Yes. <laughs> and then we get a character sheet. So what did you think overall about the book? Well, let's see, general thoughts. I had to smile when I pulled my Mummy the Second Edition book off the shelf, opened it up, and immediately a National Geographic map from 1995 fell out onto the floor, a map of upper and lower Nile Valley. So I thought, wow, I must have really liked mummies if years ago I packed <laughs> this in here, just so that if I ever run a mummy, it's like, okay, yeah, I got a map of the Nile, I'm yeah. ready for this. Luxor, oh. it's over here. <laughs> Mummy society has been expanded and in understandable and interesting ways. Thought that was fun. Uh, yeah, if we're going to talk about mummies, then we can have more than the Shamsu Hero. Let's, let's have some other groups. We can have mummy on mummy interaction, which uh, could be quite interesting. We have the Ishmaelites named as an official group that is, is really recognized as separating. It's like, yeah, we, we don't like them anymore. They left us. We don't like them anymore. We don't talk. We're not going to mix together. In the first edition book, there was mention of mummies of the Shemsu Heru who sort of drift away for long periods of time, but there was not this official divide. There was this sort of understanding that, look, we're going to live a really long time, and they are too, so it's not such a bad thing to leave the door open, and if you know, 300 years later they come back and say, you know what, I was wrong. It's like, you know what? We're friends again. Uh, this book seems to hint that it's like, no, d this is permanent. I mean, we, we live for many thousands of years, but, w but when we get mad, we stay mad. So that, that's something for storytellers to think about. Like, how do you want to approach that? You have choices there. I thought the Kabiri and the others just needed more attention. Uh, the Shemsu Heru got the limelight. The Ishmaelites are Shemsu Heru who aren't friendly anymore to their former friends. Like, okay, I know how to run them. I know what they're about. You know, they, they get into their own things on an individual basis. But the Kabiri and the others, we get almost no mention of them in this book. It's like, are there any rumors about what those Mayan mummies are up to? That, that would have been interesting. Or uh, we've noticed over the centuries that Kabiri tend to do this thing and it really pisses us off. Okay, that, that would be good. I mean, give me some, I don't know, some plot hooks, uh, some names of Kabiri that are making waves, positive or negative. It's like, you know, with 141 pages, you did have the room to drop some more interesting tidbits there and a sample character or two so that we know how to take these mummy factions and, you know, make them conflict uh, during games. Instead, it's like, you're on your own, storytellers. You'll think of something clever. You bought this book for ideas, but, you know, you're the real ideas there, pal. You go for it. So, okay, enough sarcasm. The authors had a challenge. Uh, ancient Egyptian lore is the draw of this book, yet it opens things up to non-Egyptian mummies. So where do you want to focus your efforts? Cult of Isis is a great 
opportunity for Mage Mummy crossovers. Of course, this is Mage the Podcast, so that's where my mind immediately goes. Wouldn't Horus want to use and recruit mages? For many thousands of years, he's known that mages are out there. They are powerful people, and they have their own societies. They are still out there. Uh, some of them are could be friendly. Some of them uh, are going to have reasons to be unfriendly. So I really think that Horus would have strong motivation to make the cult of Isis appealing for true mages who would want to join. And then uh, he would give them something worth their time so that they can run missions for him. Now, the real issue here is Horus would want to keep the mummy support for the cult of Isis very quiet. Because otherwise, if, if mages in general know that, oh, hey, the mummies are, are totally behind the cult of Isis, then yeah, that, that could be a mess. There would be a lot of mages who would join for a short time. And they would say, yeah, 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 I don't care about your rules. Just let me talk to the mummies. And then as soon as they learn something valuable, they leave again. And that's going to be terrible for morale in the cult of Isis. When they get some good members, they want to hold on to them. So I think for several reasons, they're going to keep the mummy cult of Isis connection quiet. But I think that Horus really does want to recruit mages. And of course, as mage storytellers, if you want to mix in mummies, don't forget the cult of Isis. The word jihad returns in this book. I mentioned in our last episode how jihad is a term from the Muslim faith and has a lot of meaning to practitioners of that faith. Uh, we want to be sensitive to them, but on the same time, I, I don't necessarily agree that we have to take you know, large numbers of, of terms from foreign languages and say, oh, someone might get upset. We can't say that word. So yeah, make your own decision at your own table. This book sort of redefines the term jihad for world of darkness setting. It says that the jihad is a struggle between elder vampires. There are some non-vampires involved in it, but for the greater part, it it's a vampire thing. So as a World of Darkness fan, I, I thought that was interesting. Mage Classic fans will find this book game ready. Open up the book, add it to your games, have fun with it. Uh, Mage Modern fans, that is people who really like to use uh, Mage Revised Edition or Mage 20, you may want to look to Mummy the Resurrection for your game statistics, your, your HECA uh, information, um, you know, game systems. So something to keep in mind. And uh, Terry, what were your thoughts? I, in general, liked it. I thought it was well-written. It didn't generally waste my time. My only criticisms were in cases where I wanted more of something. As you mentioned, any information about the Kabiri with the machinations of the Bane mummies are a little bit more information. If I'm going to use this as a game thing, I'm going to need more information about how the agents of Apothis work their interactions with, for instance, the Sedites or Black Spiral Dancers or something like that would have been useful. The underworld as depicted is kind of boring. So at least in first edition, it was so wide open that I had no expectation that the book would tell me to do anything. But here it's now kind of saying you need this semi-integrated view of the underworld that it's like, yeah, it's there. So now do we have a mentee mostly doing missions to Stygia? or something like that, because that's the one other thing that we have described. I do find it real funny that even the Kabiri meet Anubis when they die, and I hope there's a moment where they're like, this is awkward. Where do you want to go? And he's like, <laughs> and it's just like, yep, well, that's my job. I take you places. That's my deal. Cool. Uh, <laughs> but So could um, I go to a Menti this time? No, the answer is still no. no. <laughs> yep. yep. The centering of the Jihad is, I guess, kind of interesting in a way 
to bring it back. It felt weird that they mentioned the Silent Striders when simultaneously the Silent Striders don't really have access to the other worlds of Egypt. And I thought they would mention that more, like go into the band that they have due to what was it? Shoe Horus or whatever it was and his fight against whoever the bad guy was. I can, I can never remember the Silent Strider. A uh, werewolf lore just kind of falls off me. But otherwise, would I use this in a game? Yes. Would I use this edition? Probably. I think I could get away with it. The rules for Mummy the Resurrection clock in at about 233 pages. It is, I guess, a little bit more internally done. But if I were just doing a crossover game with one mummy or something like that, I would I would probably just stick with this version of it and change a few of the stats to taste, like get rid of Dodge, for instance. If it were mostly mummies, I would probably then crack Mummy the, the Resurrection and see what's all up in there. When we started doing Tomes of Magic, I wanted to have a joke where every April Fools, we would do another book in the mummy line thinking, well, there's four of them or five if you include the LARP supplement. We'll never get around to all of them, clearly. So, and now we're entering year six of the show. <laughs> so that, <laughs> so uh, good job estimating your longevity on that one, Terry. You'd make a terrible mummy. I would go to the Mummy the Resurrection portion of the White Wolf Wiki, which has a lot of information. And that does give you a lot more information on terms, other characters, subdivisions within mummy society, how to play out characters with a tragic flaw, more information on the followers of set. So it does fill out some of that other stuff. In the Mummy Player's Guide, we do get information. We do get much more information on those other types of mummies, I believe. That's the text where it's located. So, But otherwise, I can recommend this as good, fun reading for anyone who just kind of wants to flesh out their World of Darkness games. Mummies are interesting characters. They are a mix of the, the modern and the ancient. Their roots go back not quite as long as the other lines, but certainly long enough to have uh, a rich web of both protagonists that don't get along and antagonists with complicated motives. I think the Bane mummies themselves are kind of uninteresting, but this book kind of has the Ishmaelites and the Kabiri to have those that have more complicated motives. And I think that um, that works perfectly, perfectly fine too. But yeah, those are my thoughts. Well, this book, I thought, did not offer a lot in terms of how can we mix the uh, Majors and the Mummies together. So I've got three ideas of my own. Here we go. Number one, rumors are coming in from all sides about the Euthanatos searching for something. While visiting a hermetic chantry, the players learn a house Shea mage is alarmed by a mummy's request for help with a spell. The Shea mage asked other hermetics for advice in a panic, and now the secret is out. The spell is called Restore the Pharaoh's Name and restores a person erased from reality by powerful heck magic. But how can you call back a person who has been completely forgotten by everyone? The Shea Mage asks the players to help her mummy friend. She didn't mean to start a panic. The mummy has visited a place hidden in the tempest of the Low Umbra where all forgotten things are remembered in stone. The Euthanatos want that secret, and now the Hermetics do as well. The Shamsu Hero wants to restore one of their own from Set's magic. The mummy has escaped through a portal to Istanbul, Turkey. The Shemsu Heru have many mortal agents in Istanbul, and the players have the passwords to contact them. Can they protect the mummy from their awakened brethren, or do they want favor among mages more? The Cabal may examine their loyalties as the mummy is pursued through the crowded streets of Istanbul. 
Number two, contacts or visions let the players know something dangerous is starting in Luxor, Egypt. When they arrive, the gauntlet all through the town is in flux. The players are soon begged to assist a group of hedge wizards calling themselves the Eye of Ra. Their arts are surprisingly strong, but one of their members was struck down by Nefandi. The players are asked to defend the wizards as they search for clues using their geomancy. The Eye of Ra turn out to be mummies. Part of Luxor is showing signs of the ancient past, but also a death resonance. Amenti, the hidden city of the mummies in the Low Umbra, is being manifested by the fallen mages nearby. They are defended by an invisible bygone called Apep's right arm. Because Amenti and its earthly remains are together, clues to its origin and true nature can be found by the mummies if they can keep the Nefandi at bay. What is the Fallen One's goal? Can they keep the wraiths under control with such a thin shroud? Learning so much of the mummies' secrets may change the balance of power forever. Number three. Excitement is in the air among mages when the cult of Isis, hiding in the shadows for ages, approaches the Council of Nine and many disparate groups with an offer of alliance. They are making a trove of ancient wisdom available to mages who join and those who have say there is no treachery. They are creating a league to help those in need and uncover evil sorcerers who have escaped punishment for too long. When the players get involved, they are sent to stop a cabal of child abductors in Eastern Europe. This cabal turns out to be not Nefandi, but Kabiri, mummies who have operated independent of Horus's Shemsu Heru for centuries. The Kabiri have done no harm, but they have information on Horus and his servants. Horus is planning to raid an elder vampire's hideout to steal back antiquities. If the elder is disturbed, a whole region will fall into chaos. Can the players convince other mages the cult of Isis has an ulterior motive? Can they raise enough support in time to stop the raid? The Kabiri have knowledge that is crucial, but after centuries of trusting no one, their friendship will be hard to win. Well, those are my three ideas for mixing it up. Terry, were there any quotes in this book that just uh, grabbed your attention? I um, further proof that Estes is the besties. There was a quote that just came out in the beginning that I very much like. Those who would accuse me of abandoning my heritage are fatuous purists. We of all people should realize the transience of language. While the knowledge of our native tongue is still worth keeping, we should not be opposed to Hellenization of the names from our story. And just to be like, gosh darn it, Greek is okay. Um, <laughs> is, is something that reminds me of the quote when we were reading the wildly enjoyable Dead Magic 2, where the ancient Etruscan lich uh, is talking about, like, what's that person speaking? Is it the mongrel tongue of the children of Romulus and Remus? Truly have those barbarians gone so far as to destroy the elegance of Etruria? This shall not stand. And then it's just like magic <laughs> so again people arguing about pronunciation and which words to use the core of the world of darkness <laughs> so, so so what are we reading next adam definitely yeah that newfangled ancient greek it's not bad guys <laughs> give it a try exactly worry, kids talking with their 35 tenses and their date of cases and their yeah well next up i thought it would be fun to talk about the quick and the dead where we look at mortals and numina again uh, in this case mortals that know quite a lot about those wraiths well if you have something to say please contact us at mage the podcast at gmail.com with your questions comments or feedback subscribe to mage the podcast on itunes google play TuneIn, and other aggregators if you like the show others might like it too and if you leave a review of mage of the podcast it makes us more visible in their searches you can follow us on twitter 
at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes. We have a YouTube channel now where you can find our episodes. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also search in YouTube for Mage the Podcast, and you're going to find us. We're also on Mastodon. The link is in the show notes. Uh, This episode was assisted greatly by our executive producers, and we do appreciate them. Terry, can you share their names? Yes, I'm not frantically trying to find the Excel spreadsheet that holds their names. I would like to thank Oracle Sean Gallagher, Oracle Ben Bendelow, Oracle Buck Gregory, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Guy Stewart, Oracle Josh Hillerup, Oracle Pukuji, Oracle Jay Widener, Oracle Mikhail, Oracle The Crew of Erebus, Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad of the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsick, Archmaster Leroy Bryce, Archmaster Morgan Aron, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, as well as Alex Alexia, Ambiversion, Anders S. Anon, Baderfi Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Bubba the Pale One, Chris Blake, Sin Shodas, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Swank, Fragger Rock, George Lara, Henry Kraft, Eobald, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jake Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Lawson and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nathan Weaver, Nabarro, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rubem Joseph, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kenny, Samuel Tobin, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connor, and William Martin. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Remember, if you're going to have a grudge, put your back into it and wage it for at least 5,000 years. Bye. <laughs>